Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's topic is going to be reciprocal sociality. Now, the term might not make sense yet, but soon enough you'll know what I mean by this. So let's first um, start with, well, I guess first let's cue the intro music. Quirky signs where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. start with what uh, I guess let's start with pro and antisocial behavior so when I say antisocial some some of you might think of this term to mean what uh, asocial means which is to essentially not be involved socially or kind of withdrawn or non-social but antisocial here in this context means more like doing harm to others. So if you think of the term pro-social, this is essentially engaging in behaviors that are for the benefit of others in some way, like making other people happy, doing what they want, or doing something to help them on, on some level. So antisocial is essentially the opposite of that. Uh, so you would think of harming people, criminal behavior, or abuse, or all kinds of different things. So the idea of the basic idea of reciprocal sociality is that uh, that both pro-social and anti-social behavior tend to be reciprocal in most relationships, or even just generally while we socialize. So the idea kind of originally came from uh, something called reciprocal altruism, which is of, often mentioned when we when scientists explore the idea of uh, basically the evolution of uh, pro-social behavior or altruism, which is kind of like a step further than pro-social. It's actually willing to sacrifice in order to do something pro-social for someone else. And so evolutionary psychologists have kind of explored this because uh, for a long time people didn't understand how how could such behavior evolve. It seems like you're essentially harming yourself to help other people. But uh, there was basically a whole theory about uh, kin selection, at least this is one of the theories that was put forth to explain the evolution of uh, reciprocal altruism. Now, we won't go too much into that right now. Um, it's a bit tangential, but um, uh, 
if you're interested in that, I will probably go into that in a different episode, and I'm pretty sure I already have in the past. So the idea of reciprocal pro-social or anti-social behavior is essentially just that we are pro-social to pro-social people and anti-social to anti-social people. And if you look at what that's really saying, it's just pretty much uh, that we are nice to nice people and mean to mean people, at least uh, abstractly. So if we look at examples of this, um, so so most of you are probably uh, well. I guess let's look at let's look at criminality. So what we term as criminality most often is uh, various antisocial behaviors. So like stealing from people, hurting people. Uh, oftentimes it could be like assault or physically harming people. So what our response as a society to do with these people is to essentially act very antisocially in return. This is kind of what punishment is. So if you think of pitting people in prison, this, if we were to do this to someone that were innocent, this would be a very antisocial thing to do. Um, not that it's any less antisocial to do it uh, in the case of criminals, it's more just that it seems fair to be antisocial towards antisocial people. So you can kind of, like, if you imagine if someone were to just imprison their neighbor's, let's say, imprison their neighbor's child in their basement, this would seem incredibly sociopathic, right? But if we do this, what's essentially the same thing to a criminal, uh, it seems more justified that they deserve to be placed in prison like that. So the context uh, matters here. The, the fact that someone is antisocial kind of gives people this sense that it's justified to act antisocially towards them. And I think that thinking about this, uh, it, it, it doesn't just apply to criminals, and uh, it's really, really a broad pattern. And it almost encompasses the majority of our interactions with other people. And being aware of this can actually help you navigate the social world in ways that are to your benefit. And this sounds fairly Machiavellian, I think, at first glance. Um, but I think it's not actually necessarily bad. Um, because it's, it's really learning how to use fairness in ways that helps other people so that they are willing to help you, too. Um, so one of the concepts I was exploring while uh, looking into this topic was one called, and I don't know how it's actually pronounced, but I'm going to try my best. It is Schodenfreud. Um, some of you may have heard of this term. I actually hadn't until 
looking into this idea, but it's basically the idea of gaining pleasure out of other people's suffering. So it's kind of like sadism in a way. And there is some research about this being associated with the dark triad traits. Um, so for those of you who have not heard of the dark triad, I'm assuming most of you probably have, but just in case, uh, it is uh, essentially narcissism, uh, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Uh, psychopathy is uh, kind of anti-sociality. Um, sadism, wait, no, no, sadism was not one of them. Narcissism is kind of like uh, selfish orientation in a sense. And Machiavellianism is the tendency to think of things in terms of kind of manipulation, like thinking how to get what you want out of other people, but I think also oftentimes it is to see the world as other people doing that as well, like the people who tend to be Machiavellian tend to also be more sensitive to thinking that others are thinking like that, if that makes sense. So it kind of makes sense that this dark triad would be associated to uh, this schadenfreude concept. Part of the usefulness that I found in this concept of reciprocal sociality is that um, most of people's behaviors will tend to fall in line with these kind of reciprocal patterns. So if someone is being a jerk, we often have the urge to be a jerk to them. If someone punches you randomly in the middle of the street, you will probably want to reciprocate suffering onto them. You may not necessarily punch them back, but you might give them a dirty look or somehow induce some kind of uncomfortable situation for them. And a lot of this is kind of our intuitive response to other people's behaviors. So, so the usefulness of this comes often in situations of conflict. So by this I mean kind of like polarized political arguments, for example. Um, in these situations, there is a tendency for uh, reciprocal antagonistic behavior to kind of spiral out of control. And our response to this is often to give more antagonism back to the seemingly antagonistic person. But this doesn't necessarily result in getting other people to join our side or to be open to our position. In fact, it actually promotes resistance, pushing people further away from our goals. And I think on some level, the idea is to punish people who are, in our eyes, misbehaving. But I think it backfires in these cases and pretty much just results in this mirror interaction where both people are pushing each other further and further away until they become highly polarized. Now, 
it might seem strange, but something that we can do in these instances is actually to feed pro-social behavior into this social dynamic. So you might actually give positive feedback um, to the other person so that they are actually less defensive to what you have to say. So in this case, it gets pretty messy and nuanced. You wouldn't want to necessarily um, reward them for taking their position against you, but you might try to analyze the specifics of their position and reward the parts of it that are good. And you might have heard sometimes people will say to reward them and then provide your criticism. I think um, while you do this, a more cautious way might be to reward them and give it a second. Uh, let them respond to the fact that you've rewarded them, and then you continue and bring up some of your position and try to kind of build a connection that is uh, less antagonistic in essence. And stuff like this can apply in a lot of different conflicting circumstances. You'll find that acting pro-social can actually get other people to suddenly have an urge to be reciprocally pro-social back. So what I also found that's kind of interesting in the literature is that uh, pupil dilation actually is in some sense reciprocated too. I don't know if reciprocation would be the right word, but uh, it seems that our level of pupil dilation mirrors the one that we are interacting with. And so what one study found is that uh, people whose pupils tend to reciprocally dilate or uh, mirror dilate, uh, they tend to form more trust. Whereas people whose pupils do not dilate do not uh, have as much trust. And I think it kind of makes sense. It's kind of like both people are on the same, the, like, like so, well, before I say that, something to consider is that oftentimes pupil dilation is used to measure kind of emotional arousal in people. So if both people are at the same level of emotional arousal, it kind of indicates that they are on the same emotional page in, in a sense. So I think the trust aspect kind of makes sense here that if someone is feeling the same as you, they might be more trustworthy or that there is a kind of bond there. Maintaining a metacognitive awareness of this tendency that people have towards reciprocal sociality can actually help you navigate your social world. If you notice that people seem antagonistic towards you generally, or uh, that you find yourselves in social conflicts frequently, just think about this idea and see where things might be in some sense going wrong. 
you might be prompting other people to respond reciprocally with their own antagonism. And sometimes this gets a bit tricky to assess. Like for example, sometimes your belief itself can be a threat to other people's uh, beliefs or in some sense even just having a belief can almost be like antisocial behavior. And there's even a lot of nuances that come along with that. Like so, in my own life, part of what I've noticed about reciprocal sociality is that um, it has kind of come from my choice to be vegan. Now, you probably observed that being, uh, or that veganism is a highly polarizing and political topic for most people. And when I first got involved in, or when I first started living a sort of vegan lifestyle, I was not very invested in it. It was sort of an experiment, really. But I noticed that people would behave defensively almost even before I've done anything, like just the mere fact that I presented them, the idea that I was vegan would trigger a kind of conflict. And it took me almost a year or so to actually realize what was possibly happening. And so what I've come to realize is that, like part of it has to do with the fact that veganism has a lot of cultural baggage associated with it. The fact that you are aware that the topic itself is highly polarizing and political is one of these factors. So the, this, just being aware of this, it means that you should expect someone who is vegan to kind of be defensive and to be polarized if uh, kind of against you if you're not a vegan. So just thinking about that, it, it changes the way that you perceive that person's actions. And likewise, that person will become conditioned to expect you to behave in certain ways, like say, expect you to be passive aggressive or subtly microaggressive, as some people say. So this kind of expectation can actually put a lens on the way that we perceive what might otherwise be harmless situations as being passive aggressive. So for example, in my case, I might start to perceive um, if I'm in a situation and the other person knows that I am vegan and they begin to tell me about how much they enjoy meat, this could be seen as a way to kind of, in some sense, bother me or to remind me that um, that it's it essentially well let me back up so so when I think of uh, the topic of meat it is sort of because I'm vegan it's sort of associated with 
a whole list of ideas. For example, the idea of animal suffering. So like for most people, that's not necessarily the case. For most people, they might see like a burger and it is associated with happiness and joy and uh, just a good, delicious experience. In my case, I've essentially created a perspective that uh, when I look at a burger, I might see, well, there is this cultural joy associated to it, but there's also this animal suffering, which I've now connected them. So uh, when a normal person is, I say normal, like vegans aren't normal, <laughs> but I mean, it is true in some sense, right? But so when a normal person sees, is presented with meat, uh, this acts mostly as a symbol of positive ideas. But when this symbol is presented to me, it's basically a way to remind me that part of life sucks on some level. It reminds me that there's really sad things going on um, when I would have otherwise learned to kind of filter that out of my reality. Most people choose to filter that out of their reality, but in my choice of being vegan, I've essentially associated meat with that uh, part of reality that I usually don't think about as much. So when people bring up the concept of meat, it essentially reminds me about these bad things. It's like, um, it would be almost like if I came up to you and was like, hey, I just remembered that your mom died. I mean, that would be, that's not necessarily exactly the same, but it's reminding someone that there's something bad happening. and. And on some level, this can be kind of inconsiderate. Like, do I want to make that person feel bad? Do I want to remind them about what is bad about reality? I mean, it might be also another example might be like, hey, I just remembered you got fired from your job. Or like there's a whole number of things that you could remind a person of that brings about suffering again. And some of these can be more subtle, like if someone were to have been fired from their job at ice cream, like an ice cream shop or something, you might insist, oh man, I'm I could really go for some ice cream right now. And you might keep bringing that up every time you see this person. And they might be like, oh, I just got fired from the job. And uh, so you can kind of see how it's like this. Like most people associate ice cream with this positive, delicious experience, but this person that just got fired might be like, oh no, I got fired and I just remembered, like, I'm a horrible person, like, I, I can't fulfill my duties at the job, or my bosses were abusive and their expectations were unrealistic, and all, all the sorts of whatever associations this person has with ice cream because they've become an ice cream worker who has been fired. So in the case of veganism, it's sort of a similar pattern like that. And I think that most people aren't super aware of this reality. So there is some level of innocence in a lot of people's behaviors. Um, so I think it would actually be the duty of the 
person who has chosen to be vegan, it's their responsibility to actually bring up that this dynamic is going on. And I think that most people who are vegan are actually not even equipped or might not even be aware of the fact that this is happening. And so kind of like this conversation that I'm bringing up right now, uh, that's kind of the purpose of it, to kind of bring this metacognitive awareness of these dynamics into the mimetic sphere of things. And so, I mean, I gave an example about this political topic of veganism. That's just because it's an easy one for me to give because that's my lived experience. But this honestly really applies very broadly. This applies to almost any conflict in my opinion. So it might not be apparent how, and I think for each case, you would have to do some exploring and try to get to the bottom of how these dynamics are at play within your personal conflicts. So uh, this can be quite difficult, but I think it's very possible just knowing these basic ideas and kind of trying to intentionally look for uh, how it's playing out. One common element of these kinds of conflicts will be oftentimes that we don't understand what's going on in the other person's perspective. Like, for example, the case I brought up about veganism, it's not like the non-vegans will think that they're kind of sadistically harming me uh, with reminders of animal suffering right like people aren't saying like it's not like people are out there going like wow i really love a burger because i the look on your face when you remember how these animals suffer or like something like that right that's not really what's going on um although of course a lot of vegans might get suspicious or paranoid that that's what's happening and of course other times there might actually be people intentionally reminding the vegan of animal suffering for whatever reason like like i won't tangent out on that because it gets really complex but but as you can imagine the vegan obviously vegans are known for doing aggressive behaviors and so uh, there will be the, these reciprocal patterns which are essentially like this small-scale cultural war that kind of unfolds in these situations like it gets really really complex but um, as I was saying a minute ago the way that a lot of these are playing out is that we don't understand what it's like to be other people and this tends to go on both sides uh, a lot of the vegans will not understand what it's like to be a non-vegan who is presented with their own actions, right? And and it's that's even that is not a fair scenario because that other person has also lived an entirely separate life that will cause them to have a different reaction, even if they were behaving like another vegan behaved towards them previously right like it gets extremely complex and there 
are there are a lot of ways that we don't understand each other like mm, you might see let's say there's like some person a who goes about the world and they do something that bothers person b uh, person A might not know that they bothered person B, but now person B has experienced um, something that could be perceived as aggression or something like that. Then person B might reciprocate that violence on some level onto the other person. They will reciprocate this antisocial behavior. And then person A will now think that person B is being antisocial for no reason because they don't understand person B's perspective and then they will reciprocate and then it becomes essentially this polarizing loop and I think that this can kind of be used to understand uh, a lot of different psychological phenomena for example a lot of these dark triad traits, I think, are actually partly to do with weird reciprocal social traps on some level. Um, I've spoken about this or written about this in the past on the blog, um, especially in topics like, uh, originally it was the topic anti-narcissism, and there are others like the arbiter of truth, or um, more, more recently there's been topics like a mad society and the polarized mind, and they kind of get into these kind of reciprocal sociality problems. Um, Okay, so I don't know that it would be good to go into all of that at this moment, but especially because that, um, that's like its whole own topic. But just in short, uh, there, the, the tendency, or, or let's say antisocial personality disorder, I think that someone can essentially be trapped in that social dynamic once the person once the so like let's say a person is uh let's say parents are antisocial towards a child this child may have a base understanding of social behavior that people are somehow generally antisocial or that antisocial tendencies are normal as a social behavior they might then enter school and engage in their peers with this antisocial tendency. This will then cause their peers to reject them antisocially, and they might begin their life kind of at the outside of society. And some of them might learn how to integrate back into society but I think that this awareness uh, or an understanding that other people are kind of antisocial will cause this antisocial, well, let me see, this individual that I'm describing, the who's outcast, um, 
their perspective can be that people are bad and that it's justified to behave antisocially. And if you look at the new movie Joker, it's kind of essentially depicting that. It's kind of depicting this person who undergoes severe abuse from the people around them and it's it's almost getting the audience to empathize with antisocial personality disorder. You essentially are walked through a person that's having the lived experience of wanting to become a sociopath that hurts other people. You're seeing someone kind of descend into what is basically antisocial personality disorder. And it's getting the audience to empathize and understand what it's like. And even to want the Joker to engage in that way. And that's kind of why some people felt the film was kind of controversial. I actually think it's a good thing that that film is like that because it kind of opens the doors to understanding um, what might be happening when people become antisocial habitually. And I think the only way to really change that is through this kind of understanding and realizing that some of this is not so bizarre, that we on some level, we are already kind of antisocial. It's just selective towards criminals or other antisocial people who we think deserve it. But I think it's plausible that someone who has highly negative early experiences, this will generalize their understanding of humanity and that they will walk through life in such a way that, um, that they will only see the bad in people and by acting out reciprocally antisocial they will only attract badness to them they will essentially live in this kind of cycle of revenge tendencies and an urge to uh, justice schadenfreude um, so i I'm not sure that I got into the idea of schadenfreude too much in the beginning, but one of the types of schadenfreude that researchers have put forth was justice schadenfreude, which is essentially the idea that some amount of people like to hurt other people who are perceived as deserving it. Uh, as if to restore balance or fairness to the situation. So if someone goes out and hurts your friend, you might want to punch that person so that it's fair, and then you feel some some amount of satisfaction for relieving this unfairness that existed before. And I think this problem of fairness, it, it is almost at the root of how certain people might become antisocial. And I think Another interesting element of this is that there are actually some associations of ADHD uh, with becoming antisocial or having conduct disorder later. And I think this kind of makes sense because ADHD people seem to struggle with making choices that are um, considered the right choice, right? Like, they have problems with um, 
being trained to behave properly or to uh, not engage in impulsive bad choices. And I think what might happen early on in their lives is that they might become identified as a bad person and then be treated badly. Like people with ADHD might presumably be more likely to be punished for bad behavior as a child than a person who doesn't have ADHD because they might behave more poorly than their peers. And by being punished more, they are, the punishment itself is kind of an antisocial behavior. Um, but I think like beyond that, I think that the child with ADHD might have a higher chance of identifying as a bad person and thinking, well, I can't, um, like I clearly keep doing these bad things and I can't get a hold of my situation. Like what's wrong with me? And I think a lot of them might just eventually reach an acceptance of I am a bad person and I'm going to accept this and just lean into it rather than constantly beat myself up for being bad. And I think that that is potentially one pathway to um, essentially becoming like a sociopath. Though I think there's a massive amount of different paths that one can take to become a sociopath, and I don't even know that I would say that that's a common one. Um, alternatively, like I, I basically painted two different paths here, one in which a child might be abused unfairly by their parents and then they go out into the world being more mean and antisocial to their peers, and this causes them to be stuck in a loop of uh, reciprocal antisociality and kind of never learning how to develop good pro-social bonds because their parents didn't teach them to. And then alternatively, there is this alternate path that I've given about how someone with ADHD might continuously or repetitiously fail to make good choices and then eventually internalize this as I am, a, I am a bad person and I will just be like this and accepting it. And I'm sure there's tons more paths to developing something like sociopathy and I don't really, off the, off the top of my head, I don't know what they would be. So. I think I'm going to stop it here. I hope that this exploration of reciprocal antisociality has been interesting for you, and I recommend you try to apply this in your own lives. I think that um, that this is kind of the root of most social interactions, that it's almost like there is an exchange going on with um, positive or pro-social or antisocial behaviors. In some sense, it's kind of like a social credit system, except it's not, it's not, it's based on reputation rather than some sort of formalized system that's been proposed uh, around the discussions of social credit systems of today. So instead of kind of formalizing it, what we have right now is people have a reputation for being good or bad, and we make decisions on whether we should act good or bad to that person based on their kind of um, 
invisible social credit. And I think a lot of people with psychopathy are trying to game the social credit system and maximize their own well-being without um, messing up their social credit and getting exposed as a psychopath. Um, but yeah, anyways, that's more tangents that maybe you find interesting. But yeah, I would say try to pay attention to all of your social interactions and see where they go good and where they go wrong and see if you can improve your relationships and your bonds with other people by behaving pro-socially and minimizing your urges to act antisocial, even in the case where you feel justified. I think that's where the problem lies. When you feel justified, um, it feels much more reasonable to reciprocate with the antisocial behavior, but you can often break that loop by just engaging pro-socially, and this will actually cause the person to kind of back down from their antisocial stance. And I think that's a lot of times what gives people kind of a leadership power too. So I think there's a lot of value to be had with trying to act pro-socially before the other person and avoid as much antisocial behavior as possible, even when it's seemingly justified. So yeah, I hope you found this interesting and reach out to me at quirkyscience at gmail.com if you want to chat about these topics. Um, the, that is q-w-e-r-k-y science at gmail.com. Lastly, I'd like to bring up that I've been offering a psychology coaching service and in this service, there are many directions that we could take. Each person is going through a different situation. Um, and if the ideas, like in this episode, kind of resonate with you, or you face social conflicts, I could, for example, help you explore those and um, help be a third-person perspective on what what is going on in your life and alternatively there are other directions like uh, self-exploration i could help you kind of figure out why you feel the way you do or what makes you um, behave in the ways that you do or all kinds of different directions. And so if you feel like that's something that interests you, you could um, send me an email, or uh, if you look on my website, there is a page for this. I'll, I'll, I'll leave a link in the description of the podcast, actually. And uh, you can pitch me what you might be interested in, how I might help with your journey, your psychological journeys, and um, yeah, so if that's something that interests you, just uh, hit me up, and have a good day.